welcome, welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast, a conversation on the use of technology and innovation in education globally. My name is Cristobal Cobo. I'm a senior education technology specialist at the World Bank, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this new episode where we will discuss a new report hot off the press called Using Education Technology to Improve Students' Learning in East Asia-Pacific Promises and Limitations. And if you have interest in the report that we're going to dive into this episode, please go to the description. You will find the link, and I think you will deeply enjoy it. So let me introduce the three wonderful guests that we have today. My dear colleague, Noah Jaro, he's a trust team leader at the World Bank with long experience working in technology, student learning, and education systems capacity, currently with focus on West African education systems. Also, we have today in the show, Cody Abbey, a PhD student at the Stanford University studying education and psychology. He has served as a consultant for the World Bank over several years. Previously, he worked at the Stanford Center on China Economy and Institution with special interest in low-resource schools in rural areas. And also, we have Sharon Shen, she is currently a consultant at the World Bank Education Practice in the East Asia Pacific, and she was researcher assistant at the Stanford Center on China Economy and Institutions with interest in EdTech, adolescents' mental health, and more broadly, educational development in economically disadvantaged regions. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having us. Really appreciate this, Chris. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to, and to talk with you all. Thank you so much for having me as well. Wonderful. So after this presentation, let's dive into this report. Noah, why don't you tell us what is the report about? What are the good news and what are the main findings? All right. Thanks so much, Chris, for this helpful introduction. I really am excited to talk about this today. We looked at 52 education studies that measure student learning across middle-income countries in the East Asia Pacific. And the good news is we found that EdTech can help improve student learning. The challenge is that it doesn't necessarily help at all. And in some cases, it can even decrease student learning. So how is this possible? Tech is a tool like any other tool. If it's a high quality intervention addressing a specific need with a high capacity education system, the effects on student learning can be large and positive. However, we found four key challenges in using ed tech that are shared by education interventions globally. They are scale, the implementer effect, and the issues of uptake and dosage. And in the next few minutes, I'm going to try and illustrate some of these. So the first major challenge we found for EdTech to improve student learning was the issue of scale. Basically, there's a negative relationship between the sample size of the study and the effect size of the treatment in terms of student learning outcomes. This means that the larger the study, on average, the lower the learning outcome impact tends to be. So for example, there was an NGO working in Cambodia on this amazing ed tech program focused on math learning, and they showed very large impacts. Students in the five schools using the tech learned on average 0.76 standard deviations more than students who weren't using it. And for comparison, this is about seven times the threshold for interesting and important effect sizes, which is 0.1. So this obviously seems like an ed tech treatment that should be used with more kids in schools, given how much more learning took place. However, when you look more closely at the context, it turns out that many of the schools, especially in rural areas of Cambodia, don't have electricity at all. And so computers can't easily be used there. 
It also turns out that the intervention done by this NGO used additional teachers who were specialized in this particular computer program, which isn't something that can be easily replicated at scale because of the cost of uh, training these teachers and sending them out. So it might be possible for more kids to learn more math using this particular EdTech program, but major changes would be needed to implement it across the country. And a number of those changes to work at scale are likely to diminish the amount of student learning that would take place. The second major challenge we identified was the implementer effect. This means that it matters who is implementing the program, whether it's a government or someone else, such as an NGO or researchers. So of the 52 education studies that we looked at in middle-income countries in East Asia Pacific, the studies with the largest impacts tended to be those conducted by NGOs or research institutions. One study in particular set out to compare implementation by an NGO and the same intervention done by the government. Working with schools in Northwest China, they used a computer-assisted learning program. The treatment was implemented by an NGO in one group of schools where they found an improvement in student learning by a significant amount. However, in the group of schools where the EdTech treatment was implemented by the government, instead of increasing, student learning decreased by a small amount. So you have the same tech, but different results. The implementer matters. And the main takeaway, Chris, from these two findings on scale and implementation is that small EdTech pilots implemented by NGOs that show large effects on student learning are not particularly helpful in guiding ministries of education. This is because the small pilots are often not scalable and if adjustments are made to try and scale them, the learning impact often decreases. So there's some other interesting effects when we look at issues of uptake and dosage and some exciting learning impacts at scale using the dual teacher method, but I'll let my colleagues talk to you about those. This is exciting, but I think it drives a lot of attention to a message that you are saying that scalability, which usually is associated with tech, is something that we have to understand context, implementation, dosage, and other factors. And I think this is going to be fascinating for many. So thank you for this insight. And I think there's so much to drill down on that. Let me move a little bit to Sharon. Sharon, how effective can be a tech in supporting learning recovery and addressing the human capital gap in East Asia Pacific. But also overall, I think many of our audience will be coming from other regions. So I think they all will be very interested to learn about some of these elements. Thank you so much. This is a great question. My colleague Noah has been covered a lot of the knowledge points, but I'm just trying to delve deeper into how effective it can be. So EdTech could be effective, as you can see from Noah's previous responses, and in fact can be highly effective. Our point is that it has to be used properly. And by using properly, we mean that not only it has to be designed and implemented properly based on the specific needs and circumstances of the students, but also that the participants will have to comply with the required protocols. And we know that in poor and remote areas, the internet connectivity can be sometimes disturbing. It can be very unstable. And thus, live streaming le lecture videos might not be the most ideal solution for connecting rural kids with high-quality teachers in urban areas. And second, the urban teachers do not know what's happening in the rural classroom, and the learning goals of rural kids can differ drastically from the urban kids. And in fact, the greatest impact sizes we observe from the East Asia Pacific attack data sets comes from 
a latest evaluation of the dual teacher model in 2023. And there they did a terrific job by blending pre-recorded lecture videos with the local rural teachers. In this case, the students are not only able to receive the teaching from high-performing teachers with high-quality videos, but at the same time benefit from the improved quality of their own teachers who have digested the high-quality teaching materials in advance of the class and who know the students' conditions better. This is how a remote instructional model like the dual teacher program could be highly effective. But ETA could also be barely effective or even ineffective if not used properly. And let me give you an example of this through a study that yields literally no impact in our EAP dataset. And when the researchers delve deeper into the reasons, so why there's no impact overall, they found that the compliance was very low in general for all of the students. And however, there was a significant improvement for those most active students in the treatment group. But sadly, even though dosage and uptake matter a lot to the actual impacts and can be observed in many either non-tech or attack interventions, many of the studies do not report the actual compliance and dosage of an intervention and generally only report the planned compliance and dosage. So that could be effective or ineffective at all based on the very specific circumstances of whether the researchers use it in a proper way or not. Wow, guys, you are shaking some of the basic principle that technology is a silver bullet and it's a magic tool for everything, everywhere, anytime. And you are explaining that it's not only the what, but it's also the how and the quality of the implementation will play a substantive role. And also it's bringing a lot of questions to this idea that EdTech can be a tool for scalability. Any thought about that? Yeah, there are a series of important factors. There is this question about the actual scale used in the intervention. So there's a question of to what extent is our existing interventions insight valuable for a national or like a regional level scale up? So this is the first question when we have to look at the existing researchers. But there are also other factors like uptake, the dosage, the different implementation agencies, the different participant characteristics, and if whether or not the the participants have used the attack interventions properly. These are all the factors we have to take into consideration in conducting the research or looking at the research. Yeah, thanks so much for that question, Chris. We call the report Promises and Limitations because you have these two sides, almost this competition between the promise of what EdTech can do today and what, you know, with AI and other advances it might be able to do in the near future. And then you compare that with uh, what country education systems are actually able to get out of EdTech in terms of driving student learning, improving human capital. And there's really this tension between the promises of what uh, EdTech could do ideally and what it actually tends to do in practice, particularly in, in middle-income countries. So trying to figure out what interventions make sense for specific contexts rather than saying, oh, we have this shiny new tool, let's use it, but reversing that and trying to look at what the specific challenges are of individual education systems and then figuring out if one of these possible ed tech interventions might work is key. And I think this is some of what Sharon was talking about in terms of of the proper and appropriate interventions and then doing them well. That's extremely helpful and I appreciate this, these nuances that decision makers will have to address 
when they read the messages behind this report. So before going to Cody, I would like to pick up a little bit of your brain, Sharon and Noah, on the inequalities. What happened with the pre-pandemic learning inequalities and learning losses during the pandemic, during the COVID in East Asia Pacific? Anything to highlight to the audience? Thank you for this wonderful question. I think a lot of us feel like we've already going out of the COVID world, but the sober truth is that during COVID, most of the countries in this region, although they try to adapt their learning provision to online settings to compensate for learning losses from school closures, this was not always very effective. It can be effective for some people, but not for every children. And I think the first reason is that there has been important inequalities existed prior to the COVID-19 in terms of students' access to internet and computers and other electronic devices. We know from a time series of survey conducted in the region, for example, in Indonesia, there was less than 40% of the students from the lowest income group that have access to an internet connection. Only around 20% of those children from the lowest income group could access a computer that might be used for online learning. So this is why during the COVID-19, there was such a wide disparity in terms of children's access to the internet and like um, online learning resources. But I'll hand over to Noah to say something more about this question. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. So as Sharon was saying, um, these initial inequalities that existed before COVID started were then magnified in terms of learning inequalities once schools started to close and learning moved online or, or other mobile applications. So looking at that same series of regional surveys, the reality is that online learning was really not high. Vietnam was the only middle-income country in East Asia where more than half of the students were engaged in remote learning on a regular basis while schools were closed. In Indonesia, it was less than half of urban students, so 44%, while for rural students, engagement in learning during school closures was uh, 36%, so significantly lower. And this trend of lower levels of engagement overall and then extremely low levels of engagement in learning for rural students continue. So in the Philippines for urban areas, it was 41%, while in rural areas, it was about 25 And then Laos, Mongolia, and Myanmar continued with even lower amounts. Um, so 15% uh, in urban areas in Laos, while only 5% of rural students were regularly engaged in learning while schools were closed. So the idea that distance or online learning in some way replaced in-class instruction during COVID-related school closures just simply isn't true. And these findings suggest that in addition to high levels of learning loss overall, unequal access and engagement with tech translates into higher learning loss for students from poor socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah, and there's a final point to be made here is that the households in the wealthier countries are also able to spend more on their kids' education to compensate for the school closures and support online or mobile learning during the COVID-19. And this is exactly why ensuring students from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds to have equal access to learning opportunities from the attack is particularly important before we actually, you know, scaling the attack up to a national level. We believe that more effective teacher training should also be provided. Um, which I think 
our colleague Cody will elaborate, and I'm looking forward to it. Wonderful. Yes, we need solutions and recommendations. I also am really looking forward to hear Cody's messages in terms of how technology can best support teachers to improve students' learning. Cody, what are your recommendations after this report? Thank you so much, Cristobal, and thank you so much, Sharon and Noah, for laying that foundation and for so well summarizing some of the main findings of our report. Although we wrote this report very much about EdTech, and that is in the title, that is um, very much so coming up and up again as the theme, I think it's really crucial for us to acknowledge that teachers are vitally important to the education process. They're so central and we think about teachers as important, and, and I think a lot of us know this in the education field, not just because they're transmitters of educational and academic content, but the teachers also, they have this, this special ability to inspire students and to teach them social emotional learning skills, which leads to long life, better outcomes in a variety of different areas besides just cognitive skills. Policymakers believe this. In our report, we cited some data from the bank and the Center for Global Development that poor classroom instruction actually was cited as the most important reason for low levels of learning after poverty. So obviously, we see that different levels of instructional quality, that's the top concern on policymakers' minds. And educational technology isn't the solution to that, but it is one of uh, solutions to these sort of challenges that teachers face. They're not going to replace good teaching. They're rather going to help teachers become better teachers so that they can focus on the tasks or the responsibilities that really fulfill their potential and making a difference in students' lives and, and freeing up their time so that they can be with students and interact with them directly. And there's uh, many different examples we can see from the, the research. So for instance, in a study that was conducted several years ago in Ghana, essentially it replaced all of the students' normal instruction by teachers in language and math. And the classroom facilitators were freed up to manage the classroom, to interact with students, to organize activities, to uh, answer questions. While at, at the other end, there was a satellite transmitted live stream instruction from a, teachers in the, the nation's capital. And what was really interesting about the study is not only that they found that there were significant impacts on numeracy uh, among the students within one year, but they also found that the classroom teachers, they were engaging in a whole variety of different types of instructions while these live stream instruction content was being delivered to the students. And so we see that there's actually this benefit for classroom teachers and that they're able to have more free time and to engage in that in-person learning and not so much focus on the direct instruction, which a lot of people see as sort of a more outmoded form of instruction that is fast being replaced by more active forms of instruction and student-centered learning. And when we have this dual teacher model that Sharon had talked about before, some people believe that you're actually increasing the teacher to student ratio because you'll have essentially two teachers in the classroom, this remote teacher and this in-person classroom teacher teaching at the same time, but performing different roles. And so 
we see that there's enormous potential with, with the dual teacher model in this regard. And also with AI, AI brings a whole host of potential opportunities to help teachers sort of have more time, more free time. And that comes through being able to address some of the lower order tasks that teachers often spend so much of their time on. Over half of the time that teachers spend throughout their day is actually focused on tasks that isn't involving direct interaction with the students. So tasks like designing lesson plans, going over students' homework and providing feedback on their grammar and doing administrative tasks, all these different tasks. We're finding that adaptive systems like intelligent tutoring systems are actually able to perform and, and allow teachers to be focusing on some of the higher order tasks, such as giving students higher level feedback, such as on their creativity, such as on um, their logic. In addition, to uh, being able to interact, as I said before, directly with the students. This is amazing. I'm glad that you mentioned AI since today is in the top of many, many agendas, but also you, you underscored this idea that teachers engage and inspire. Should we rely on AI for engaging and inspiring or should we keep that as a role of a human expert in education? What would be your, your reaction on that? Uh, I think humans definitely have a special role when it comes to inspiration. At least I, this is more of an anecdotal based answer, but certainly in my own life, I would say my teachers have been the ones that have driven me and motivated me to become a better version of myself. And so I think teachers, that sort of in-person influence is pretty irreplaceable. That's not to say that AI may not be able to assist teachers, but I would say that we want to definitely uh, value the special influence that that human being can play in the life of another human being. I love that. I love that. To sing in teachers as a source of inspiration. That's a very powerful message. So thank you, Cody and everybody. Before we close the program, let me ask each one of you a very difficult question. One advice that based on this work you would like to give to policymakers and decision makers who are in their countries studying how to use technology to support learning. You have gone through a lot of studies, you have done a lot of analysis, so one single thing will not be fair. But if you want them to remember one takeaway from this work, what would it be? Thanks, Chris. Um, my one piece of advice would be to, to talk to teachers. Something that has come out of this work for me is the importance of capacity. Uh, what is the capacity of the teachers and the system uh, in which you're trying to introduce a, a new element, a new ed tech program or a new computer learning system and the importance of the, the capability and the motivation of the teachers uh, seems really, really important. And so before spending potentially millions of dollars on a new tablet or a new software or whatever the particular intervention is, I think talking to teachers to better understand both their needs, but also their abilities is essential in trying to determine whether this particular investment approach might work. Thanks so much. My piece of advice will be very sincere. It's just like to design the attack interventions or design an attack program for the people who actually need it, not designing or implementing it for the sake of designing or implementing it, just because you have that billions of dollars of public expenditure education and you want to do something fancier. No, you have to think of how to use it properly for the right people. Um, so this is what I would sincerely raise to the policymakers if they can ever read or report or listen to this 
podcast. Thank you. Uh, I love these words of wisdom from Noah and Sharon. Um, I would say besides focusing on teachers and listening to them, which is just so crucial in both doing research or doing on the ground work when it comes to educational technology and trying to make sure that the people who need it the most are benefiting from it, as Sharon said, I would say also, I think in terms of looking at sort of heterogeneity of impacts, as we talked about before, it's very interesting because in most, most education technology studies, I find that one thing that is always focused on the academic performance, which makes sense, the academic performance of students, the ability of teachers to uh, increase the academic performance. And it makes sense that in education, we are, we are focusing on that. But at the same time, there's so much more to a person's education besides their math and their English and their uh, you know, other language or science abilities that it's surprising, to be honest, that we don't do a little bit more of consideration about the whole the whole child and 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 what i mean by that is 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 sort of what other types of capacities are are we affecting when we introduce this new technology into the lives of students and i think you know there have been studies not many um there's one study I'm, i'm remembering i think that was performed in south america that actually found that students who engaged in this computer assisted learning were actually improving in their math skills, but their social emotional capacities in terms of actually math anxiety increased as well as their willingness to collaborate with others actually decreased, the study found. And I think there's very few studies I've seen that look at those types of outcomes. One of my interests is is in social emotional learning. Uh, I think that it's something that we should consider more when we're thinking about education technology, not only does it improve the learning, the academic of learning of students, but what else is it doing to these students and the teachers? You know, is it making their lives happier? Is is it leading to more flourishing in in our society? Or is it improving their academic performance at the expense of other parts of their life, uh, other other parts of their well-being? We should definitely also consider so I would I would say that, yeah, definitely, I think both in terms of research, in terms of practice, we want to definitely look more at the whole person and the whole society that's being affected when we introduce uh, technology into our lives. Wow, that's a wonderful message. And I think it's a fantastic way of closing with this final, super powerful message. Um, for me, the three messages that I'm getting from you guys is talk to teachers, have a user-centered design before planning the intervention, and also keep this big picture, go for a much more integral way of understanding education and learning, and not only on the cognitive part. Noah, Cody, Sharon, thank you so much for this work. I invite everybody to read in full details this Using Education Technology to Improve Students' Learning in East Asia-Pacific Promises and Limitations report, and we look forward to have you in the podcast again very soon. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you giving us this chance to join your podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.